Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. You've got an incredibly powerful message around the concept of everyday heroes, and I think it's such an amazing way of looking at how an ordinary person can have a profound and life-changing impact on a child or another adult that, that, that needs that help. But it might not necessarily feel like a hugely courageous act, yet what someone does that might seem small to them can change someone's life. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about where this concept of an everyday hero came from and why you think it's so important that more people know about it. Yeah, I mean, it came, you know, one of, the, one of that concept of everyday hero comes from me being dis- dissatisfied with people stand- not standing on the truth about themselves, not realising how powerful they are and how much difference they can make. Not just for you, but also because of everyone you come into contact with. And, and not realising your impact means you're limiting how much impact you can have. Um, the journey of it, me realising that I had, <clears throat> excuse me, five everyday heroes, and that was my TEDx talk as well, the power of everyday heroes, was really growing up in school. And noticing the difference between uh, the adults who knew why they were there, took enough care of themselves to be able to show up as their full fast self at work as well as at home, and were consistent, they were authentic, they had high expectations embedded, they were for me and with me, shoulder to shoulder in the chaotic fire that was being a kid in and out of foster care, living through abuse, you know, just all sorts going on. And th- and what it felt like is that they weren't doing anything particularly big. When I eventually stopped pretending, because I was hiding my past, I was so terrified of people finding out about my X Factor backstory. I used to tell people I had a brother called Tarquin, thinking that would make me look more respectable. <laughs> I was so afraid of people. I'm already working class. That's like, you know what I add? You know, I'm brown and female and a foster kid. Oh my God, I'm like a poster girl for the Tory party. So I, I didn't want anyone. <laughs> Knowing anything about that, because I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed and scared. So I, people were, when I first started talking about it, and people were saying, so what did they do? What was the big thing? And I was sitting down thinking, actually, it's a series of tiny little things that are doable and achievable for a regular human. So they are heroes to me, but they are everyday heroes doing everyday actions. For example, Mr. Simpson, my geography teacher, used to say hello to me every morning. It, I mean, but when you're coming from a place where there's no adults there and if they are there, they're putting cigarettes out on your arm, beating you, you know, setting fire to your dog for a laugh. Or or if they aren't there, you're trying to wade your way through the drugs and the syringes and the bags of your white powder that's been left in the front room after a party last night to get your younger brothers and sister, the youngest of which is only a year old, out of the house so you can go to school. Someone smiling at you is actually huge. So... It's the connection piece. It's the acknowledgement piece. It's the botheredness piece that makes such a big difference when your confirming data is you're cheap and you're dirty and you're worthless and you don't matter. Now, if that's what it means to someone who is navigating that, there's it's not saying if your life is different to that, small acts of kindness don't make a 
connection because I feel like we've gone through a we've had an industrial revolution that was fun right we've had a technical revolution that went well we're in the middle of this digital revolution a human revolution is the next thing that we're due and and the connection it's a currency in a post-pandemic world being human first and professional second is a currency being authentic professionally authentic personally like you know or personally authentic and professionally vulnerable these are all currencies so how do we how do we swap fear for curiosity that and, and everyday heroes were my ticket out of mindset poverty so i kind of coined it from trying to describe exactly the codify exactly how i'm not where statistics say that i should be as an adult i watched your tedx talk um as part of the preparation for this interview and speaking to you and i've seen a lot of them and obviously so many of them are incredibly moving but yours was just profoundly moving in a way you marry the stark reality of your upbringing with humor and also advice and a call to arms how difficult was it for you to begin to talk about what you'd been through and how influential were were those everyday heroes in you as you said being able to talk about yourself and not be embarrassed about what yeah yeah yeah. that that was a huge joy to come over to overcome because it i just so much fear (laughs) so much fear and i'd invested a lot of time in crafting a persona that hid all of my past because I was, I've always found myself in very kind of white middle class places. So I stand out as it is and I'm trying to blend in. So when I was training to be a teacher, for example, it was all very much, you know, how are we going to help the poor kids? This is what the poor kids need. And I'm like, oh, don't anyone find out you want to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there was this huge fear the whole time. And to be honest, my TEDx talk was not that talk. It was a very easy, safe talk about rebranding failure which was one of my jazzisms and how it owning failing your way to success and celebrating failing blah blah, blah. and uh and as I was putting it together one of the coaches said to me I'd put I, I was de- debating should I put the bit about the apprentice in is anyone interested no one's interested I shouldn't and my my one of the coaches who now became a friend said yeah you should put it in because it does a lot of work for you I'm like right okay okay so we had the apprentice clip in talking about failure and then uh we got to the end of the process. It's literally three days before TEDx. It's three days before the biggest thing. I mean, I'm bricking it already. And I happened to say in a side conversation to Leah, the coach, you know what's funny? I, I think I was a bit, I was getting a bit arsy at the moment as well. I was a bit I was tired. I was tired and vulnerable. And I was getting a bit ratty. I said, well, the thing is with the apprentice clip, the truth about that is that week, that was the week that my brother took a heroin overdose and died. The, the, the day before it's announced and everything goes mad and everyone's contact. So I spent that week doing TV shows, going to radio shows, sitting on the sofa of BBC Breakfast, you're fired, whilst arranging a green funeral, trying to get to see my brother's body. But because he died of a drug overdose, they're going to, they assumed I was also into drugs. And so they were talking to me as if I was, I mean, that's a week of resilience. I've never had a week like that in my life. And and the interesting thing about the whole TEDx thing was, is that at the moment when I shared that, I was terrified. I was te- I was scared to death. But before that, I'd, I'd done very safe talks on literacy. I was very passionate about reading, writing, and spelling on my tickets out of poverty. So I was very passionate about them. I'm still passionate. And I, I spoke. I thought, I wonder what would happen if I changed my slides. This was a, an event. There's only about 300 people there. I wonder what would happen if I changed my slides. So I just told a bit of the truth, just a bit of my story. And I trended on Twitter 
The first time was when I got fired from The Apprentice. That was horrible. But the second time I trended, it was because what I said actually resonated with people. The very thing that I was ashamed of and I wanted to hide, I don't know if it all worked out and I've got this terrible past that I've had to try and overcome, was the very thing that made people feel like I can do this. So when I stopped lying and when I stopped hiding, and when I stopped being afraid and letting fear drive my bus, and it wasn't an overnight thing, it was gradual, suddenly... I saw other people taking agency from that and I realised that I was I was doing exactly what my everyday heroes had done for me. I was showing up. And so what difference have they made? Every difference. Like I should be dead. I should be lost in a world of sexual exploitation in prison. And I would have done all those things because I'm a high achiever. I've done none of those things because of them. <laughs> so, so it... You know, it's a really, really important message. But the, the TEDx talk wasn't meant, it wasn't going to be that. It was going to be a very typical bang on brand from jazz at the time, safe. And and it's only through, I mean, I always, I always, I only ever talk about what I've processed, right? I'm not, it's not therapy speaking. I've had therapy. It's a lot, it's a lot better than standing on stage talking to 6,000 people. But I, I speak from a place of healed scars, not open wounds. So somebody said, you speak with humility and humour and a lack of hate. How do you do it? Because I'm speaking from healed wounds, not open scars. So none of the stuff I'm talking about has a, any hold over me. Th there are things that perhaps I wouldn't say on stage because I'm still, how do I feel about that? I wanna, I'm more important. My sobriety is more important than anybody else's. You know, my well-being is more important than anybody So I'm always mindful of that. But... I want change more than I want to be right. I want to be right a lot, ask my husband, but I want change more. And that requires inconveniencing yourself. So finding a way of not saying, look at me, I survived, I'm great. But saying, if this is possible, and I, I was wrong about what's possible, what else am I wrong about? What what are you wrong about? <laughs> what could you do? Like Last weekend gone, last year I won Speaker of the Year. I won Best Live Gigs, Live Gig of the Year, Speaker of the Year. It was huge. And I remember at the time thinking, it's impossible. How do you go from foster care to speaker of the year? You don't, except for I'm doing it now. So it is possible. So what else am I wrong about? This year, I didn't win two awards. I won four awards. Speaker of the year, best live gig, live gig of the year, um, storytelling award and most positive impact. I cannot even take that in. I'm still like, that was last Friday and I'm still reeling from it. But there comes a point where what I'm doing is empowering, inviting everyone else. And people are one sandwich away from a revolution at any point in their lives. You just got to offer them the sandwich. So I feel like I'm inviting people in. And because my focus, my lever is on others, not on me being like, I'm actually really quite uncomfortable with the fame side of what I do. But the lever being on other people means that people get to change. I'm not interested in inspiring people. I can stay in bed and inspire you. I want you to change. I want you to do more of something or less of something. So I have to do the work in the keynote, in the talk, for you to change your mind about yourself and act on it. And I think the TED8 was the beginning of that. You mentioned the five teachers, those everyday heroes who who basically changed, as you said, have completely changed your life and a different career trajectory where you're now in a position where you can help others. And what I took away or what hit me the most was they were doing anything that they necessarily saw as heroic. They were just showing up. So my question, Jazz, is if someone's watching this, I'm watching this, how can I be an everyday hero? Oh. If I don't have the confidence or the bravery, where does somebody start? Because it's Beautiful. not about grand, huge gestures, is no. it? It's, it's smaller than that. 
Yeah, and it, that's the best question I've ever been asked. How can I be an everyday hero? Oh, there's and there's a step. There are steps. <laughs> the first one is you have to be ten percent braver than you've been before because you're going to make mistakes. Is people say, what if I get it wrong? There's no what if. It's going to go wrong. So let's focus our energy on what we do when we don't know what we to do rather than worrying about what if we get there because we're going to get there. So the 10% braver thing is like, what is it that you, what what have you got? What are your resources? What's your current reality? Like, are you a coach of a football team? Do you like singing? You could start a choir. Do you, is there, are there kids on your street that play football outside that you could just say a kind word to or join in or buy a new football or do something that isn't creepy and likely to get you under suspicion for being weird, but is also kindness. We, we've got, I mean, every day here for me, there's just two and a half rules. This is the two and a half rules of our family, two and a half rules of my business, two and a half rules for life. The first one is be kind. You do not know what people are going through and people mask. So just be kind. Be kind to yourself. Stop saying yes to so many things and then overcommitting and underdelivering. Be kind. That's it. Rule number two, don't be a dick. And I know that it's like, don't make it worse. If you can't be kind to yourself, because so many people seem to unable to do that, don't make it worse. Don't don't add into a situation and, and like hurl more stuff that people have got to work through for more pain. Don't don't inconvenience yourself to the point where you're not able to show up as yourself. Don't be a dick. And two and a half, rule two and a half, if in doubt, refer to number two, because people find it easier not to make things worse than to do something positive. So it's literally, how can I not make it worse? Here's what I do. Little things. I spend a lot of time in airports. I travel a lot for speaking. I will find, I do this at gigs, I do it at train stations. I'll find someone who is whose hair I like or whose cardigan I like or who's got a nice bag. And as I walk past them, I'll go, oh, your bag's amazing, makes you look great. And I walk off because that's just like, bam, I'm just dry. And people often go, uh, uh, uh. but honestly, the look on people's faces when you're able to get them to engage with something that breaks their constant tirade of, I'm not good enough, people like me don't do things like this. It's like sunshine through clouds and that gives us a chink of possibility. So it's the tiniest of things. It's not huge. And I, and start with your... Why are people doing it then, Jess? Why are, why are more people being everyday? Because it... Fear of failure? Yeah, well, it's not just failure. It's, it's self-preservation. So I'm living as if I've got nothing to lose and nothing to prove. <laughs> That's how I live. And nothing to fear. because I, And I'm living like that because I am... I've been a fear fighter. I have this Shiro's journey, which I kind of outlined the journey that I took. The hero's journey has got mostly men in it. The only women in it are mothers and whores. And I'm both of those and so much more. So I have the Shiro's journey. So fear fighting is the first bit where you learn to fight the fear of what if. Mistake artist, mistake without an E. You learn to get it wrong and reframe. Like the time between the mistake and being okay is shortened. Then a resilience ninja, where you learn to start bringing other people with you and showing up as yourself. Then a positive disruptor where you actually encourage change and then you become a shero. But this time you go around the journey again, but you take someone else with you. You're the guide. You're not the hero. So in this journey that I've done with so many people, it's in my Human First Academy. It's 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 kind of I have thousands of people going through this. The fear fighter is the most difficult one. And Mustakart, if you can do the first two, you can do the others. But people are fear is driving the bus. What will people say if I do this? What will people think of me? What will people... We're comparing, we're comparing our backstage with everybody else's front stage on social media and we find ourselves lacking and we develop this inner theme tune of I'm not good enough. People like me don't do things like that. Um, and the, and what, all I can see with my kind of, you know, ADHD brain, all I can see is that everybody is scared. 
So if everybody's scared, it only takes one person to go, hey, let's not be scared together and, and tell a more compelling story than a fearful story. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think that's what really resonated with me with be the 10, 10% braver. Is yeah. that it's, not, it's not a call to arms to do something now. It's next time you're in a situation, just exactly. think, what would, what would a 10% braver version of me do? You might not have to do it then, but it's almost introducing it's a moment just, more yes. than reflecting yeah. rather than having to do something. It's like, maybe yeah. not this time, but I'm thinking, how could I do something the next time an opportunity? Getting, off, that, getting off automatic. Yeah, it's, you, you've hit the nail on the head. It's getting yourself off automatic. When George Floyd was murdered, I, I've got a friend. I've got I've got a white male friend in California. Nowhere near where I am. But, I, you know, my, I'm like, I must call Dane, check he's all right. So I called him and went, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And I left a message because he wasn't there. He misunderstood the message. He called me back and said, yes, I agree, Jazz. You should say something. And I was like, oh, my God, are you mad? I'm not saying anything. I haven't got white privilege, but I've got white adjacent privilege and I'm hanging on to it. Thank you very much. I'm not going to rock the boat, have a chip on my shoulder and have a, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to, I'm often the only brown person in a room, the only woman at an event speaking and people think I'm the coat check girl. I'm not going to start. So I'm like, no way. And then what I realised is that I've got a lot of friends who aren't brown, who are also scared. They don't want to get accused of a hate crime or say the wrong thing or use the wrong term for a Muslim lady's headwear. So we're all scared. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what if fear wasn't the defining factor? What if I said to someone, I'm going to gift you 30 minutes of my time, 30 minutes of my life for a courageous conversation where the only rules is there's no judgment. I won't judge you and I won't judge myself. I ask the same from you. We get together and we're just courageous. So we don't have difficult conversations. We have courageous conversations. And then I have people say, can I have a courageous conversation with you? I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. Let me strap myself in. Let's go. Because the whole thing is, what would happen if we were just 10% braver? And for some people, that's raising the hand in a meeting. For some people, that's starting a revolution. For some people, it's leaving the toxic relationship they know they shouldn't be in. But that's the whole point of 10%. It's relative to what you did last time. And it's incremental. How, given your expertise, the conversations, the people you've had, the, the, the different walks of life that you've interacted mm. with, how have we ended up in a place where fear seems to be the overriding automatic position that most of us are in? God, I mean, humans are cute, aren't they? I mean, we, you know, we take in other species and treat them as if they're our own species. We hang metal from our bodies and we make loud sounds when we find something amusing. I mean, humans are cute and Humans are driven by a need. Even the most introverted of us are driven by a need to connect. And the fear of the need to be part of a community and the fear of not being part of something or being ostracised, you know, it comes from kind of being outside. Like I, one of my favourite stories is the village of Eam during the plague. It was in Derbyshire. You know, they got the plague and they cut themselves off. The, the fear of not being part of something is so strong and has been driven even more so by a media that isn't news, it's opinion, social media where it's everybody's opinion, um, magazines where if you're a woman and in the West, you've got to be this size, you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too tall, you're too short, you're having too much sex, you're not having enough sex, you're too brown, you're too white. There's just all this, you're not enough because that is an easy way to get a rise out of people. It's an easy way to get connection. A harder way is to meet someone where they are and walk with them. That requires more effort. So the shortcut you're not enough. Fear. Fear of missing out. Take our country back. Make you feel like you... That's a shortcut to getting people engaged. And so it's an easy, lazy 
way of doing it, but we're all susceptible to it. I'm susceptible to it. Boots brought out their anti-aging skincare range. I'm like, should I get that? I don't even wear makeup. I'm very anti. This is what I look like. If you don't like it, look at something else. But, but I'm like, I should go and get the, why? What is wrong? We're so embedded because I've got 50 odd years of being told, keep young and beautiful. It's your duty to be beautiful, you know? And so it's buried in there. And I think until you start on picking like knowing yourself in order to lead yourself, in order to lead others. That's kind of one of the central tenets of our company, Be Human First. Until you start on picking yourself, we're all kind of just victims of our experiences and what we've heard and what people have said. And this happens a lot. I say in keynotes, I'll say, right, put your hand up if you're a success. And in America, everyone's on the table. Yes, ma'am. In the UK, it's like, uh, oh, don't, go on, Maureen, you put your hand up. Even when it's true, and I, I can have, I can be in a room of educators, a room of CEOs, and there's 300 of them and two are standing up. And I'm like, what? Guys, you can't think of anything <laughs> that you've succeeded in. I mean, what kind of stories are we telling ourselves? It's not bragging if it's true. So tell the truth. Tell the frigging truth. And that that's something that, again, comes from the people who did that in my life were the people that showed me there was an alternative way of being to the theme tune of I'm not good enough people like me don't do things like this and and it's you, you can't be what you can't see so you you need that we need that we need that for ourselves we need it for the people who are invested in us and we need it for the people we meet I think so many people when they're thinking about how do we force societal change will look towards the government or big organizations hoping <laughs> yeah. that they're going to yeah. lead the charge are we looking at this entirely the wrong way? Is the only thing that is ever going to force the societal change that so many people want to see down to the act of a few brave individuals? Yeah, I mean, a few 10% braver individuals. That people have said to me all the time, well, why aren't you working for the government? I have worked with the government. It's They're people, and they're people with a lot more handcuffs than a teacher in a classroom or a CEO in a company have got, or a woman who works in the rail, the, on my train station, the shop, the coffee shop. She has a lot of control, a lot of power, a lot of agency to affect people's days. She probably has more than the CEO of the rail network who could probably do more and get trains on time, but I don't know how that works, so I won't yeah. snag him off. So for me, when I have worked with government agencies, and don't get me wrong, I've been all over the world, I've worked with governments, I've advised on policy, on education policy, and in Trinidad, I, I, they changed their entire literacy teaching. They, they moved 19 places up the Pearl scale for measuring literacy. Adult literacy went down. Massive impact. But I want to be on the front line. I want to be where you can actually have change. And the government is like a juggernaut trying to do a three-point turn in an alley, whereas you are in a mini on a motorway with no traffic doing the same three-point turn. So we can make more difference straight away by stepping up. And I think with, like, look at Barack Obama. I remember him saying, I got into power and I can't do anything. So this job's rubbish. I can't make any change. It's, it's, it's The systems are set up in order that it needs lots of decisions. I don't need to ask 6,000 people and have a meeting ratified before I brush my teeth in the morning. I just do it. And sometimes I don't because I don't have to. Do you know what I mean? I, I always brush my teeth. My kids are watching. I never miss a time. <laughs> but, but it's that thing of like, we can look to others for change and we could be waiting a long time or we could get to the end of our life and say, you know what? I had the courage to be myself. And that I, Bronnie Ware was a palliative care nurse. She wrote a book. She worked on palliative care for 12 years, asked everybody what their regrets were. I wish I spent more time with my family was a regret. It wasn't number one. I wish I'd worked less was a regret. Not number one. Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to be myself. Now that's heartbreaking. 
that people mm. could get to. The, but what we can do as the not currently dying is we can look at that from the experts who know they're near the end and do a pre-mortem and say, if I was, if I had the courage to be myself today, if I could be 10% braver right now, what would I do? What would it look like? And what's stopping me? So I, I just think we've got more agency than we realise. It's one thing for adults to sit and, and listen to our conversation, think, you know what? Yeah, I can be myself. I should be. I can be 10% braver. What about kids? Because they're growing mm. up in a world completely alien to the world in which we grew up with, with social media, the pressure to be a certain type of person or to hide their natural instincts, fear of a pylon or whatever you want to call it. Your experience with kids, how are these young people growing? Are they growing up with a lack of resilience? Is that a common thing you're seeing? Are they fearful of yeah. being themselves? Well, what's your, you know, you're on the front line. Tell me what it's like when you're dealing with these kids. No, we teach them that. We teach them. You go into a reception class, you say, I've written a book. I need a really good artist to do the pictures. Every hand will be up. You go into year six and say the same thing. I'll be, go on, Stephen. We're doing that. We're crushing their creativity and their self-belief. We're making it so that even though girls are outperforming boys, who's in all the top jobs? We do that. When people say, oh, we're not institutionally sexist or racist or the systems aren't, the systems are individuals. We are individuals. We have biases. We have experiences. We have should stories. Oh, little girls should be seen and not heard. And we bring those and like really crap generational heirlooms, we pass them down to others. So what I see with kids, especially Gen Z, I am so excited about Gen Z. This is the first generation that probably knows more than since, since boomers. But this, this is probably the most awake and with it. They've got boundaries. They're looking. I see Gen Z's looking at Generation X and millennials going, yeah, your life is, you miserable. <laughs> why have you, why, you got no boundaries. No, no, this is what, I, I see a real kind of learning from it. And I am fueled with hope, I, especially with kids who are going through adversity. Lots of people talk about the lost generation of and the, the kind of failed generation of, through drop, lockdown where schools were closed. Schools weren't closed. Schools were working four times harder than they usually do, which is already too hard. Um, and I said, actually, they're not a lost generation. They're Generation C. We're all Generation C. And Generation C doesn't stand for COVID. Generation C is generation change, generation courage, generation creativity, because they we had to navigate something against what was normal. We're all so busy looking for what we've lost that we miss what we have and what we've gained. And missing that means we do not have a clear view of what we are capable of or what is possible because we're so busy remembering the times when we won the lottery and we sat on the sofa looking at a big bag of money going, oh, do you remember when we were poor? Yeah, I do. Now let's spend this. Do you know what I mean? It, it's that I feel like I'm incredibly privileged. I have such privilege. You know, I live in the way I've got computers, lights, clothes, a fridge full of food. I can go out whenever I like, do what I want. I'm, it's, I've got so much privilege. And yet I still find the time to sit at home, at home and moan about, I, I don't even know what, first world problems. Because I am, I, I've kind of learned to, you know, look for, like, it's my default. <laughs> my default is misery. It, I, so I but try if, and hack if you, that. If you're fueled by the, the enthusiasm of, of this young generation, how do we, as both individuals and society, not crush it out of them like we seem to do with previous yeah. generations? Great question. You really, you're like the paxman of, of podcasts. You really should do this for a profession. Yes. I tell you what we do. We change how we are. That's what we do. We deal with our should stories from the past when we were told uh, your brother's smart, you're, he's the smart one, you're not. When we were told you're not good at maths, 
I mean, you can, I, I see 50-year-olds still going, I'm crap at maths. I'm like, uh, you need to update your story. Like, you can, up, we update our phones, right? But we leave these should stories in place for years. So me saying I'm not good at speaking, I've just, I've won two, I've won loads of awards for speaking. Evidence and data tells me I am. My own thoughts and feelings tell me I'm not. Well, which one is more true? Me and what I think and feel based on what, you know, my own kind of experience or the evidence and the overwhelming evidence and data of everyone who knows about this and don't have my emotion wrapped up into it. So the most important thing we could do is us. Like I grew up, <laughs> here's, here's one thing that I don't think I've processed as much, but I'm going to share it with you. It doesn't hurt. I just can't, I'm just aghast. I lived on an estate when I was growing up, a um, council estate where there was a, a, a a uh, satanic abuse ring. It was in all the papers. It was everywhere. It was like three generations involved in sexual abuse within a family. Anyway, when it got found out and everyone got arrested and the kids got taken into foster care, the local councillor, not councillor, from the council, came round to all our houses, knocked on my door. I opened the door and they said, we have a petition here to chemically castrate all of the children who were abused because as you know, all children who abuse go on to abuse. So we need to do something about it now. And obviously what they didn't know is they're talking to a 16-year-old who has been sexually abused, who has been sold out to other men, who has navigated all this journey. And I, I like, fight off. Like, I just, oh, I just died inside. I was so scared, trying not to give myself away. But I can't sign this petition. And I want to talk to them and say, this is insane. But I, fear, 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 fear. Just crushing me at every stage. And and the the whole thing is, is what we do is we make decisions and assumptions and then we half-baked force them on other people and ridicule them if they don't believe what we say. So we've got polarised views where if you order the wrong pizza topping, suddenly you're a member of the Third Reich. I mean, you, you, you can't have conversation anymore in case you get it wrong. So let's just stay in our silos and shout at each other. That's not going to change. And I think Gen Z look at that and go, it, it hasn't worked for you. There's got to be a better way. I don't know what it is, but this isn't working. And that's the insight that we don't have. We're like, well, it's always been like this. Mm, that's not evidence and data, is it? Just because you've always done it that way. But we, we're stuck in there. It's always been like this. And I think the biggest thing we can do is know ourselves better, make a commitment, be intentional to leading ourselves better so that we can lead others and influence others. And everyone's a leader. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about soul, not role. And that in my business, what we have is a load of tools, not lenses. I know we've got loads of personality tests, but actual tools that help people do that because it's about codifying being a human first and, and being the adult you needed when you were a kid for the kids that are there now. It feels that uh, to any generation, there comes a point where you have to break the cycle, right? And just how you might have been raised or, or how your, your parents were raised. At some point, you have to think, well, just because it was done before doesn't mean that's the best the best well, way to I, I think everyone, I remember Darren Brown did, um, did, you know, he does those things where he pretends there's a zombie apocalypse and everyone, uh, he did one way, can you get someone who is, who says they're racist to save the life of someone who's a different colour to them? It's like in Mexico. And uh, the guy who was, well, he was interviewing him, who held racist views. And the guy said, I'm not racist. That's just the way I've been brought up. And I was like, God, that's worse. Because you're saying, I've not thought about it at all. I just believed the adults that were in my house. <laughs> and, that's, and now that's what I'm going to do. I'm, just, I'm not going to update the story. I'm not going to get curious about it. I'm just going to carry on with that. And I'm like, wow, parents tell you a lot of crap when you're 
<laughs> we update stories about, you know, certain things that happen at Christmas. We update stories about what happens to our teeth when they go under the pillow. We really need to, our, our one job, right, as humans is to keep our story updated. So rather than saying, oh, I'm crap at this, up until now, I've struggled with this. From now on, I am going to be more intentional. I am going to try harder. I am going to get help. It's about realising the power you have to not let your past become a script for your future. And it's not only for your future, right? It's potentially your kid's future. Because oh, if yeah. Big time. Way, this is where there's only the work you've done with schools. There's only so much teachers can do in, in, in terms of preparing children for the real world in terms of resilience because the resource, the time, all the other issues they have. I'm really interested, Jazz, in as a, as a new parent myself, what can I be doing to foster an environment of, you've talked before about embedding ambitious resilience. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about that and, and what kind of that culture or that mindset could mean for an individual and their family. Yeah, I mean, the first thing as a new parent is back to the two and a half rules. You have got to be kind to yourself because I, it, this is a relentless job, right? And I could tell you now, it's too late for you, but I'm telling you now, I, my first daughter got to 18. There's no prize. There's no prize. I'm like, where's, where's my, is there a reward? Oh, you get the reward of seeing your child blossom into an adult. So nothing monetary, no trophy. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's hard. Hard things are hard. But I think one of the things that I know for Ed and I that we decided on, I was very afraid all the time. And when I had kids, I'm like, what if I die? What if I, you know? So we were always very, what does 50-50 look like? when we both have jobs and yours brings in most of the money. What does that look like? What does the family need and how do we attribute it? And in some ways we fell into quite traditional roles, but in other ways we were always trying to like model what a good one looks like for our kids. We call it waggles in educate what a good one looks like. So I'm trying to be a living waggle. So and there's, there's, there's ideas of like what I do with my kids when they're little, they'd offer you, um, a biscuit, like this is my daughter because it's all the good girl syndrome, right? So they'd offer me a biscuit, it's the last biscuit, and my heart as a mum would be go, no, no, sweetheart, you have it. But what I'm modelling to her is that I never put my own needs first. So sometimes she'd offer me a biscuit, last one I'd go, oh, thanks, and I'd take it and eat it because I'm <laughs> taking care of myself. And when COVID was on, I had a sign on the door and it said, yes, you can have a Jaffa cake because that's all they ever asked me. But there was this thing around, you know, you have to make some decisions yourself because we're all together and I can't be there 24 seven. I want to be there 24 seven, but how resilient are my kids going to be if I'm picking up after them, running around after them, when they say they need 36 cakes at off eight in the morning and a banana costume for the school day and I suddenly prepare, no, it's got to be like, well, that would have been something good to plan. So next time we need to, it's, we go out, my kids want a magazine. I can afford to buy them a magazine, but sometimes I say no, because it is good to know that you can't always get what you want without thinking about it. So it, I don't want the kids, my kids to have the same hardships I have. I don't want them living on the streets. I don't want them navigating ridiculous adults who are trying to hurt them. I don't want that. But I do want them to have the, the, the pivotability and the resilience that I have, that ambitious resilience. I want them to have that. So what can I do to engineer that? And one of them, if you're lucky enough to do it, is travel. Well, travel. I take my kids into town and I'm like, right, there's the bus stop. Find your way back. Because they, I want them to be able to do it. Yes, I could bring them back in the car, but I need them. I'm making myself sound out to be a real terrible thing. <laughs> I abandon my kids. I eat their last biscuits. But there's something around... I want to show them what it looks like to be a good human and a great citizen. 
And the other thing I do is I'm, I have healing time. So after eight, in my hour, I ask, if it gets to six o'clock and I'm still wearing a bra, something's gone wrong. I want to be in my pajamas at six. So by eight o'clock, I like to be in bed reading, Netflix, whatever, just take winding down. The kids will come and talk to me and I'll say, sweetheart, sweetheart, uh, is it urgent? I mean, first of all, you know, you have another parent. He lives in this house too. So is he available? But second of all, is it urgent? Because right now, mummy's healing. I'm doing something really important. I'm recharging. So if you're bleeding or you need me to take you to the hospital, I'm fair, I'm there. But if it isn't, this is really important right now. So I've modelled to my kids how to take time for yourself, not to keep, not to be a people pleaser, because I'm, I'm a total reformed people pleaser. Well, I'm not that reformed, but I'm, my tendency is to people please. So, so I've, I've tried to model what that looks like. And, and the best thing you can do for your new mini human is look at the things in yourself that you think, you know what, what do I want to pass on and invest in? And, and make sure they're the best that you can give and that the negative stuff isn't watering it down. That That's the most important thing. My, my youngest drew a picture of me, little traitor, in school. Drew a picture of your family. Ed's playing football with Jake. Trin is baking with Leo and I'm on my laptop. He showed the teacher this picture. And I, I mean, I'm getting cross, but like he drew what he saw. And Trinity said, you know, when you're on your laptop, sometimes we're talking, you say yes, but you don't mean yes, I can, I'm listening. You just mean yes, you're talking. Sometimes Leo comes to show you a Pokemon and you don't even take your eyes off the, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, Garamond, isn't that fun? Yeah, I just ignore him totally. And all you're doing is saying to people, I do not prioritise myself or you. Everything is about emails. <laughs> so it's, it's hard and you have to be intentional, but there are tools. And, and I think the biggest change you can make for your child is you. Two and a half rules. That, that's what I've followed all along. Makes a big difference. When it comes to men of my generation, we kind of grew up with our fathers and grandfathers. It was the stiff upper lip. Mm. Any men of this is not talk about it. And I've seen, you know, a new wave, not recently, over the last five or 10 years, former SAS, Navy SEALs, a lot of very prominent male macho personalities kind of, still forcing this suck it up buttercup attitude you just grind it out i'm really interested jazz in your take on how they're informing the conversation around resilience because to me almost the people that choose to join the military and become very high up you've probably got a certain type of personality in the first place right maybe your brain is slightly wired differently to, to most of us and also you're choosing to enter an environment or a scenario where there could be trauma so you're probably approaching it slightly differently i'd be really interested in your take on what these kind of these SAS, these these big macho figures talking about, just suck it up. How much is that damaging the conversation around mental health? Yeah, and I don't think it's just men as well. I think it's kind of like, if you look at the 80s, women going into high higher positions in the workplace, just trying to make themselves more masculine. That's how you blend, by not being yourself, by being more manly. and Or, or the masculine images that we have to that. And I think for me, resilience is not stiff upper lip, okay? That's just inconveniencing yourself and not dealing with it. It's very convenient to not deal with emotion by not talking about it. But what's hilarious is look at the vast history of human knowledge we have. Oh, if you just don't talk about it, it goes away and it doesn't affect everyone. It's it's when people say, I went to public school and it didn't do me any harm and they were beaten up constantly and bullied. And it's like, if you're saying to someone else, you should do what I did, even though I was beaten up because it didn't do me any harm, it did in fact do you some harm. (laughs) Because you are pushing someone else. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's take a step back. But for me, resilience isn't sustaining stress. Resilience is the time between 
when you are on the floor and when you are back up again. It's shortening that time. So for me, it was years. Something would happen and I'm like, that's it. I'm discounted. I'd bear a grudge. I'd hate myself. I'd hate other people. I'd make my mind up about something and that was it. Years. I got it down to months, to weeks, to days, to hours. I can pivot in minutes and I'm going for seconds. It's that ability to reframe. to, And that's my three R's of resilience. You know, the first one is to... Take responsibility for what you're responsible for and nothing else. That's really important because we always take on other things. Like what can we actually control? The way we show up, nothing else. Can't control anything else. We can control how we show up. And the second R is reach out. And that's two points. Reach out beyond what you think is possible because you've got this tiny garden of possibility based on your own experience. Other humans have other gardens. You're not the gold standard of human. So reach out beyond what you think is possible. And also reach out and connect with others who've done it I've got a mate who's, you know, constantly in rehab and I say he came out and I'm like, what are you going to do different this time? He said, I'm going to try really hard this time. I'm like, I'll see you in three months. If trying hard was a thing, we'd all be size eight, doing yoga every day, putting our legs behind our head. Trying hard is not how you succeed. It's reframing the story you have about what's possible. So reaching out to others who who are running faster than you, that's really important. That's why mentors, coaches, that's why I do so much for the speaking community and the leadership community, because I'm like, we shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel here. We all benefit if we get ourselves sorted out. And then the last one is reframe, and that's the most powerful one. Reframing the story, being able to look at it differently. And, and that, for me, that is the heart of resilience. That's the that's the pivot. That's the spin. Because I used to teach reception, year one kids. I used to do swimming with year one kids. And the only thing worse than that is infant recorder practice, which is like strangling several cats. So I would take kids swimming 30 minutes, takes us 20 minutes to get changed, five minutes in the pool. Then we finish and I've got 18 pairs of knickers that have been lost. How do you lose your knickers? Just Have you got them on? Just look. I'm still I'm still bitter about having to do swimming with you. And I had the group that couldn't swim, right? The group that, that, that they finally, after a year, they can do five meters with a float and someone holding them and, you know, soft music playing because they're not they're non-swimmers. So I don't swim. Notice the use of the word don't, not can't, like it's a choice. I'm not really a swimmer because I, I get hair extensions. They get wet. They come out. I don't like being wet. It's, I, there's just a lot about swimming I don't enjoy. But also, if I when I teach swimming, I don't have to go in the pool. I stand on the side with those blue things on my feet and just shout instructions. I'm a really good teacher. I've seen YouTube videos on how to swim so I can teach it. I don't have to get wet. It's not the same with resilience. You can't be a hot mess telling someone else to suck it up, book a cup. I'm looking at you like, hmm, Last time I went for a health check, health check I had an, a nurse who was overweight um, and she looked at my weight, looked at the chart and she said, well, you're a beast. <laughs> and I felt, she was bigger than me and I felt like going so what are we going to do about this? it's like you do get the optics of this it's like there's a problem we're sharing let's talk about it as a we rather than pretending it, 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 it you undermine your own influence when you refuse to engage in ambitious resilience because we are all up against it that's what the last four five years showed us we are all up against it some of us think we're really resilient and then when it comes down to it we're actually, we've got nothing under the surface. And and so ambitious resilience looks different. It's like the difference between happiness and contentment or fulfillment. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is drugs and cake. Happiness is a kid falling over and you've been framed. Fulfillment is sustainably strong. It's a place to return to. So for me, resilience is elasticity. It's the snapping back into standing on the truth about yourself, being your fullest, fattest human in order to move forward. Of your three R's, 
when you're speaking to people, which is the which is the hardest or the most difficult people have mm. to, to deal with? And following on from that, Jess, what's your advice for somebody who, who would be struggling with that particular issue? I mean, they're all hard. They're all hard and they can have to be done in canon. I, I think I think people find responsibility super hard because there's a narrative around it, especially with women, there's be- it's better to do things for others. Like you hear people talk about being selfish when they're talking about their own well-being. Like you're investing in your most valuable resource. Is it selfish to make sure you've eaten so you can feed your kids without fainting at the cooker? No, that's practical. It's it's sensible. It would be really stupid to do it another way. But we do that because our narrative is I must put everyone else first. I must say yes. I must do everything for everybody else. So I think taking responsibility, like I've often done this in keynotes and workshops and I say to people, you know, what are you, what can you control? What can you not control? And people say things like, I cannot control how I feel because other people are in control of how I feel. And I'm like, are they? So you, 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 I mean, you know, I'm asking as a question, I don't know, but are you saying that you could be okay and someone could upset you and then the rest of your life is off kilter, the rest of your day is gone, you're going to shout at everyone because of the impact, because that, you shouldn't drive. Someone cuts you up in traffic and that's it, everyone, you're going to kill everyone for the rest of the day. I mean, it, are we able to control or do we hand over that control to any passing person who has an opinion about us? And it's it's just, in, and some people will say, I'm not a success because I'm not married and I haven't got kids. It's like, where's that story come from? I, I didn't, is there a book somewhere that says success looks like this? And we're all, we're all supposed to have read it. I missed that one. But it, it, we all have these stories that, that get in the way. So I think responsibility is hard. Having said that, reaching out for the stiff upper lip grade, they don't want to reach out because it looks weak. Like everyone, everyone wants, and my, my job is to change people's mind about themselves. So everybody wants authenticity. That has now become a currency. Nobody wants vulnerability. You can't have one without the other. Or can you? Donald Trump, beautifully authentic, has never claimed to be a fan of disabled people or LGBTQ or women or brown people. He's never claimed. He's always been honest, right? What he says is what he thinks. Don't like it. Don't look. That's it. But when it comes to vulnerability, the boy can't say the word. He, he can't talk about weakness without... Sp- I've seen, If you watch him do speeches, he spits the word speakness, weakness out. Massive issues that are unresolved. <laughs> Massive lack of self-leadership there. But... That's what massive authenticity looks like without vulnerability. Professional vulnerability, personal authenticity. Not like personal vulnerability. I think I'm an alcoholic and I got involved in human trafficking on the way to work. Get some help. Professional vulnerability is really important. But I think I think people find that hard. So that the reach out is hard. And the reframe is, I think it's hard because of the lack of impact, input on the other two. The reframe is hard because we're... You know, our amygdala wants to keep us safe. It, it uses calories to think. So let's make a snap decision and move on. <laughs> it just, it's like, why did I get mugged? It was your fault. Move on. Oh my! And then you start taking, why did this happen to me? Because you're bad. Move on. You know, it's just trying to keep us alive. It's only got one job. So we form stories around those, un, uh, those open story loops. Why did this happen? Oh, it must be me. <laughs> and then we try and close the story loop the quickest way possible so we can move on. And I think, responsibility and and reaching out would go a long way to changing reframe I, I, responsibility I think that's probably the hardest one people find to as a starting point in all your dealings with people is there a big kind of age or generational gap and the reason I say that purely anecdotally you know people I know around my age early 40s it's almost you get to a point where 
you stop caring about what other people think. It's not important. And you almost wish you could have transplanted this mm. outlook to your 20-year-old self. It's like, well, what would I have been capable of if I hadn't been so worried about my appearance or what I said or all these other things? You just kind of lose some of that that weight of, of worry of what other people think. Do you notice that? Is that a common thing where people suddenly get to a certain age or maturity or life stage and just these these conversations you have with them become slightly easier? Well, I don't think you ever graduate from a school of self-improvement. So that is a constant journey. But I, when I was a photographer, I used to take pictures of families, portraits, and the mum would always say, oh, no, don't put me in it, just the kids. And I I think I did once, but my, old, my inner narrative was, you know, in 10 years' time, you're going to be older and fatter, right? So how you look now, you're going to look back at this and go, boy, I was hot. So let's enjoy this because in 10 years' time. So we're always looking back and going, I've got a friend who's got a picture of herself when she was 18 on a fridge. 52. You're not going to look like that again, love. You haven't got a DeLorean in the garage, but she uses it to deter herself from eating biscuits. I'm like, I t- it, it, it's energy that I could be using to do something that actually has an impact on my life and others. So I think maybe there is a point where people realise this. If it is, it came very late for me. And if it is, why are we waiting till 40, 45, 50 to realise that imposter syndrome is a thing? We have it and we can reframe. Why, why are we... I mean, if we've got one job at school to prepare people for adulthood, this should be thought about then. How the brain works, how, you know, kind of our own biases towards ourselves needs to be taught because we're getting stuck in these stories. We're believing the hype and then it takes a lifetime. It takes like a middle-aged life in order to actually work it through. It's got to be a better way. Think of what we could have been doing earlier if we'd had this knowledge. Is that what's missing from the curriculum? If you could add anything in, would it be a greater awareness or emphasis on some of the things you're going to experience as you leave school and go through university, go through your young adult life? Because you're taught about Pythagoras, but you're not really taught about what the, what what your what it's going to look like your first day at your job and how to deal with, yeah. with situations what your teenage brain can't imagine. Yeah, and we need to look at employers for this. Employers are constantly going, here's the list of things that your people can't do when you pass them on to us. You know, and we're like, oh, yeah, we'll do more history. You know, I'm not saying, like when I was um, in doing it at uni, we did alternative history because the history was very kind of through a British lens, right? Britain's good, everyone else is rubbish. Um, and alternative history was Mary Seacole. <laughs> it's like a, a nurse who wasn't white, who did something amazing. And, and it was billed as alternative history, like someone had sat and made it up, or it's just a tale, but it's not true, and blah, blah. And I, I think the whole thing is with the curriculum is that we need to look at, a, we, need to, we need to stop moaning about what happened. We need to measure our success, not on phonics screening checks, not on GCSE results, but what our kids are doing at 30 years old. That's how we have success. That's how we know we have a legacy, a lifetime legacy. So if we are equipping people to deal with everything that the humanity throws at them, like change, you know, like half the jobs seven-year-olds are going to do, haven't even been invented yet. AI is going to change the way we live and work and then probably kill us all. So, you know, there's... it's pointless saying, 50 years ago, this is what it was like for me. So you need to know this. No, actually, I need to be prepared to be agile. I need to be prepared to be resilient. I'd write a whole new curriculum and it would centre on these things. And when after COVID, the government put out whoever was education secretary, 47 education secretaries ago, two years ago, they put out this thing saying, well, good news, good news. We're going back to exams, GCSEs, because it's the fairest way 
of work. And I'm like, "Mm -mm, it's not the fairest way. It's the easiest way for you. Just be honest. It's not the fairest way, but it is the easiest way. The more we discover about neurodiversity, the more we discover about what's actually needed afterwards, the more we discover about big academic achievers going to a university and not being the biggest fish in a small pond anymore and having massive mental health issues. If every child at 16 gets a load of nines, but they've got no way of monitoring their own mental health, they don't know how to lead themselves, they can't market themselves in a job, what have we actually won? Nothing. All we're doing is churning out more of the same. It's not enough. It's not enough. It needs to be better. We need to be better. So for me, like my daughter learned about credit cards and a compound interest when she took core maths as an option at sixth form, but she spent her GCSEs doing quadratic equations. I would argue many 16-year-olds will never use those words again, but everybody will have a credit card, rent to pay, budgeting, a mortgage, whatever. So can we just prioritise and actually give them... So? And also the human brain, I mean, we've got to stop walking around as if we humans are a mystery and they just do stuff out of nowhere. It, it, it's, that's not what happens. We're very predictable. We, we predict leadership behaviours. Human behaviour is actually very predictable. You keep a cat, a rat in a cage, poke it with a stick, let it out, probably going to bite you. So all this shock horror, look at this person who's done this heinous thing. What's behind the front? You know, we're passing them from school to school. We're ex- excluding people, can't do And then they end up in prison. It's not that none of them have got literacy skills. I'm like, is, is there anyone else thinking that this is coincidence? And then they all go on to commit crime. And then we're all surprised and horrified. I'm like, this is not a fairy tale. It's not four legs, good, two legs, but actually it is that. <laughs> it's not Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. This We're not living in a fairy tale. These are predictable things that we can interrupt if only we can be 10% braver. There are, I, I applaud teachers. There are great teachers out there. But we need to look at the curriculum and ask ourselves, are we doing the best we can for the generation that are going to be doing our hip replacements? I don't think we are. And how optimistic are you there, Jazz, that there is going to be the change that you, you think we need to see in that regard in terms of changing the curriculum and introducing yeah. some subjects that are essential to a young person now in over the next 5, 10, 20 years? I, I'm totally optimistic because you can see it's already being dictated. I mean, it has to be. In order, it, it, it's, it's like you can keep doing the old ways, but look at look at the, all the strikes that are going on. Look at all the people, the people who are rising up, teachers, doctors, nurses, they're the ones that put up with crap all the time. They're the last people to, because they'll just, long hours, low pay, no respect. You know, they'll just keep going. But suddenly they're saying, do you know what? Things could be better. And if they're saying that, then the other conversations are big. Also, the rise of um, opinion media and and like the not far right. What would Donald Trump be like? The, the right, the hard right, um, and the the rise of this sudden. Actually, do you know what? I feel like this. It's like ah, repressing how we feel hasn't got us very far. It's put us into silos. But actually, talking about how I feel, yes, we're at the point at the minute of shouting at each other and saying you're both wrong. But actually, we're at a point where we can have conversations. And conversation is information. Information is knowledge. Knowledge is choice. Choice is change. The whole thing is going to include challenge. It is going to be hard. But I see schools now saying we're going to serve these kids. We're going to serve our community. And if that means we can't get outstanding because we're not doing progress eight or whatever the term, whatever the things are now, we'll do that because our job is to show up for them. And that that takes bravery. That takes bravery. But I see it all the, all the time. You see schools spending money on washing machines so they can wash kids clothes. So that's nowhere in the teaching standards, is that included? But they'll do it because they're going to fight for the highest good of the kids. So, again, it's back to your question of, is it the government that make these big decisions or is it us? It's us. You've done so much work with with companies and corporations around um, corporate wellness. 
it's such a huge thing in, in fitness. I've been in the industry a long time. You always hear of corporate wellness. Your experience, Jazz, being in these meetings, having these conversations, are a lot of companies paying lip service to the idea of corporate wellness or are we genuinely seeing a change where they are putting employee mental and physical health at the forefront of their company policies? The p- people are doing the best they can based on their should stories with the resources they have based on their perception of what a resource is. <laughs> so... That sounds like a very political answer. Well, no, I, I genuinely believe people are doing the best they can. It's just the best they can isn't very good. And it's causing people... I was at a wellbeing conference, 9% of any workforce, at 10,000 people they, they question, 9% at any one time in a workforce are having suicidal thoughts. 9%. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. The head teacher that took her... I can't even. I can't even. What is wrong with us. Why are we doing this to ourselves and to others? Lip service, at least it shows that you notice something's wrong, but it takes bravery to put the change in place. I say to leaders all the time, you should be leaving work at half three on Friday going, so long suckers, I've got a life. If you want to set the tone, you shouldn't be sending emails at half 11 at night going, take care of your wellbeing. What about this report? But we, again, leading ourselves. (laughs) So people are doing the best they can based on their should stories. Change your story, change your life. People are using the resources they've got available based on what they believe is a resource. People like me don't do things like this. It's not possible. Computer says no, it's the system. There's all loads of reasons why it won't work. And there's one singular reason why it's will, because you show up as 10% braver than you did before. And that's something that you can control. So that is that, oh, that was gonna be my final question. When you go in and speak to corporations, what, what are the good ones doing right in terms of, actually caring about their employee health and well-being withness some organizations do things to their people enforced yoga thursdays one o'clock <laughs> some organizations do things with uh, for their people which is all right but then you kind of parent child relationship you're doing it everyone gets entitled some organizations do things with their people and withness means i don't know what you're going through but i will stand shoulder to shoulder with you in the chaotic fire while you navigate it it's very withness withness is what people are doing So what does that look like? And that's one of the big things I educate and work with schools and the the communications you send out, the marketing that you do withness. What, where's my story? Where does my, where do I fit into the story you're telling? That, that's the number one thing. And, and also people are awake now. You can't just inspire them to a marketing campaign, but treat your staff like rubbish. (laughs) You better be living what you're saying. Like McDonald's is the latest one to come under fire lots of like abuse of and young people who work there being very kind of bullied and scared and and sexual harassment and, and you're like guys there's there's get get on the right side of history right you, why wait until you get found out start now saying how can we make a small change how can we live our values rather than laminating them and sticking them on our website as if that's enough it's you're meant to feel it you're meant to feel it <laughs>